Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Robert Fry, joined with Garrett Boyum. And today we have on Ted Monick, a sports psychologist consultant who is currently a PhD student studying flow. And he came and spoke at my sports psychology class. And I saw that it could fit really well with an ecological approach and athletic performance and skill acquisition. And so I really wanted to have him on to explore this topic more. And we had a great conversation that I'm super excited to share with you guys today. And to piggyback off what Garrett said, this was a rather uh, stimulating topic that led to a lot more questions being asked and a, you know, a lot more further exploration between Garrett and I. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Finding the Edge podcast. Yeah. Ted, I'm super excited to have you on. Um, you came and spoke at my sports psychology class about flow, but before we kind of dive into that, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into flow research? Sure. Um, I was an ice hockey player and uh, also a professional coach. And a uh, uh, when I played ice hockey, I was a an ice hockey goalie, and uh, <clears throat> became an assistant head coach. And I've been an uh, ice hockey goalie coach for. 25 years or more. Um, it was my, uh, it was during my career that uh, I went to see a sports psychologist uh, and that turned me on to the field. And uh, I, in my goalie coaching, I seemed to have some aptitude for working with athletes um, and the mental challenges they were encountering. Coaches were sending me athletes for this purpose and i decided that uh that rather than dabble in this that i would uh, go ahead and pursue the education uh so that i really had the qualifications to do a good job and now that's about all i do as a sports psychology consultant and mental skills coach. My own interest in flow state came from my experiences uh, of flow as an athlete and as a musician. And, uh, you know, like so many athletes will do, they afterwards they stop and say, wow, what was that? And when I eventually read about it, I went, yes, that was that. And uh, when I experienced it, I performed, my performance was perfect. Uh, and I wanted to know, like so many athletes, how to get more of this, how to experience that again. I wanted it for me because it is quite it's quite an addictive state because 
your your body is flooded with neurotransmitters that make you feel really good. And the reason for that is to facilitate the optimal performance, but also to make you want to get back to that state. And uh, so I started researching it, uh, both the, uh, uh, the neurobiology uh, and the uh, psychology of the state. So, Ted, do you want to kind of explain a little bit more explicitly what is flow and what is a flow state? I know you kind of covered it a little bit there, um, but do you want to kind of um, kind of explain to people like what exactly is flow? Sure. Flow state uh, is uh, a name uh, for something that was once called uh, optimal performance. And uh, it is where uh, we are in a uh, for uh, for athletics for sport the athlete finds themselves in a situation where typically the challenge that is presented to them is slightly greater than their skill level now these athletes at this point have a degree of mastery of their sport they're pretty good they're not novices novices typically don't experience flow state uh, because they're so busy thinking about what they're doing. When we are, are in a state of mastery, when we're experienced, we don't have to think about how to play the sport. So there's not a lot of thought going on. And when we encounter the situation where the challenge is slightly greater than the skill level, our brain, our mind within the brain, interprets this automatically, realizing I got to step it up. And we might need to figure out ways to accomplish this that are beyond the typical technical skills we have mastered. I might need some creativity here. And the brain, sensing this, realizes that it only has a finite amount of energy with which to respond. And all of this is happening in an instant. But the brain decides, I'm going to redistribute my energy so that I can respond more creatively. And realizing this, the brain knows it doesn't need to do things like tell time or be judgmental or to think about ourself. And these are all characteristics that come from the prefrontal cortex and more specifically, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the brain. So the brain redistributes energy from the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to other areas of the brain that it typically does not use in this performance situation. Because actually, in this state of mastery, we just learn how to keep doing things and responding the same way to the same challenges. Now that makes 
our nervous system very strong in these ways, but it also kind of puts us into two ruts, like ruts in a road that your tires can go into. And it can be hard to get out of those ruts because that's how you go every day to and from work down a dirt road. And eventually your car wears these ruts in the road and that's where the wheels stay. And so we end up with these mind ruts, how we do things habitually. But we have to respond more creatively. The brain redistributes energy from the prefrontal cortex and knocks us out of the ruts. And all of a sudden, everything is new and fresh. And our mind, our brain, is experiencing lateral thought. And what that means is putting together two ideas that really don't have anything to do with each other in order to get a new creative result and to solve the challenge that is before us, this greater challenge. Now, when we shut off the prefrontal cortex, the seat of self-identity, seat of judgment, the seat of time awareness. We don't have those anymore. We no longer experience self-identity. However, if we were to say, oh, something's different, I'm in flow state, we would immediately leave it. It would shut off because we said the word I, which is self-identity. We have reactivated consciously the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and shut off flow. So Ted, yeah, is is uh, metacognition bad? I guess when we're in a flow state, um, is having too much self awareness? Um, does that knock us out of flow state? Is that what you're kind of describing there? Yes, I am. Okay, but when you're in flow state, you're not going to have self awareness. You're actually going to feel the description of individuals in flow state is that. They really feel like they're kind of one with everything. Hmm. And that's kind of the feeling you have. And, you know, that sounds kind of kind of spiritual. And so people come away from this experience saying, you know, this was kind of a spiritual experience. I felt like I was one with everything. I think that's that's really cool and really interesting. I actually want to pivot real quickly before coming back at that idea and that concept. Um, One of the things of like all the many things that you were just describing about flow. um, I mentioned this too, when we were, we were talking um, in class was how much I think it, there is overlap with ecological psychology and how I understand motor control and, um, optimal performance from an ecological perspective. Yes. Uh, this, this idea that um, different environments can, can put us in different states that cause us to perform um, at our best. Um, additionally, that we're able to directly perceive information. And in some ways, like you were just, what you were describing sounded like the brain wasn't as actively involved. And that's something that an ecological approach views um, 
our perception, my per, our perceptual system and our motor control system can directly perceive information in the environment and respond to it. Um, and so that, that's why I find this so fascinating. Um, this idea and this concept of flow is it sounds like it, it really, um, aligns well with an ecological approach. Sure. That's exactly what I'm saying. So let me say that, let me go back to what I do in working with athletes. And again, this flow state is the, is in, in the mind of me, the coach, that's my goal for these athletes. If I can, if I can enable them to be mentally conditioned. So my role as a mental skills coach is to simply teach athletes how to get their mind out of the way of their body so that they can respond automatically or what we say kinesthetically. And, and that sounds so much like the ecological approach to me. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I was super excited to have you on. And, and also too, like, how do we, how do we help people get into this state uh, more frequently or, or, or even first to become, do they need to first become aware of it? That, that seems like counterintuitive based upon what you're saying like that. That's actually, maybe we shouldn't make them aware of it because if they become aware of it, they can take themselves out of it. So what is the best way to approach this idea and this concept of flow with athletes? I think it's um, I think it's totally appropriate to make them uh, to to educate about this. Um, and uh, uh, what I find with young elite athletes, uh, they're very motivated, and they're looking for every opportunity to perform better. And when they when they learn about this, oh, they want it. They want it. Um, and, uh, that's good, no, but not everyone will. And, and this goes to something else that I've recently become interested in, which is, um, using, um, an assessment tool with my athletes, uh, uh, testing them for their level of openness to experience, and, and this is a psychological term, openness to experience. Someone that has a high openness to experience is open to experiencing new things. But someone with a low openness to experience, we might say, is, is more conservatively minded. They want to keep doing things the way they've been doing them because they at least trust in what they can do there. Um, so, uh, I've actually, uh, acquired some assessment tools, uh, simply worksheets, uh, that I can work into, I can create these, uh, tests, uh, from, and, and de determine is, is this an individual, how, how open is open to experience are they? And those individuals I have found through experience, though I haven't started testing, uh, I found that those who are open to experience are more um, 
open to talking about this very subjective, rather esoteric state and to try it, trying things towards it. And some will say, I'll do anything. Just tell me to do it. What, what, great, what great trust and faith they have in me. But, uh, um, and so to do that, I believe the first we need to gain control over our, uh, this, this quite mundane uh, mind of ours that won't shut up, that won't stop talking, talking, talking. So much thought, layers and layers of thought. We, we can sit quietly and, it's, and we just, our mind just carries us away in thought or worry or emotion. How are we going to settle into this state of no thought when the mind won't stop thinking? So we have to condition the mind. Because I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about here is not just experiencing flow automatically. Uh, it just happens, and we're like, uh, wow, what was that? Okay, sort of like a, just a random lightning strike? Exactly, exactly what I was thinking. We were struck by lightning. The conditions were perfect. Now, how can we start to control that? How can we control the conditions so that we can facilitate it? Hmm. We can't think about it. Can't say, I want to go into flow now. For lots of reasons, it won't happen. One of which is we said I, which keeps the prefrontal cortex alive and active. I don't mean alive, active. Well, <clears throat> and we're thinking about it. Now, when I've experienced it, um, Playing ice hockey, it was at a period, a moment of great challenge. My team had a penalty, and one of our players was off the ice in the penalty box. So the other team had more players than us. I was an, I was a goalie. I knew that the all of the play was going to be in my zone, and I really had to step up. I knew this, and I really focused on that. There was no doubt. I knew I could do it, but I had to work hard. The challenge had slightly exceeded my typical skill level. This was the hard part. I knew everything had, I had to do everything just right. But still, the other team has techniques to pull me, the goalie, out of position so they can get a shot into an open net. And sure enough, they pulled me out of position. And I looked as they passed the puck to a man who had a shot at the open net. I looked, and everything slowed down. Amazing, like a movie. I looked. I saw the puck going to his stick. I knew he was going to shoot it immediately. And I was down on my knees. I had to employ techniques to get back there, and I extended my arm, and I knew I was going to catch the puck. And I did. And as it was coming towards the net, and it was coming towards the net 60, 70 miles per hour, pretty fast, not as fast as it could, but pretty fast. I knew I could see it, but it looked like it was in slow motion. Why did it look like it was in slow motion? Because I, just me, 
I was experiencing time compression because my prefrontal cortex was shut off. I was in flow state. I didn't, I didn't think about it. I was worried about that puck, but focused on it. I didn't think about me. It was just the puck. I didn't even think. And what I find so cool about that story is that you were able to connect to the information in the environment from a, from an ecological perspective. Like I find it really interesting. Like when you're in that state, you're able to pick up more information and you're able to act upon that information and adapt your movement, um, even being out of position to be able to get back and to actually make that play. And that's, that's what I find so cool or about flow state is that from an ecological perspective, it allows the athlete to be more sensitive to relevant information in the environment and then able to utilize that information to um, execute what they need to do. And that's because of the stream of neurotransmitters that my brain, my nervous system, my HPA axis is releasing as a result of being in this state. So my ability to read my environment, to sense what is going on, is heightened. Mm-hmm. My ability to respond to movement and to read the situation is heightened. So all of this is going on at once. And so the time compression is the result of my prefrontal cortex going dark and my energy, the energy from that being reallocated to other parts of the brain. All I'm doing is seeing and responding. And that's the other cool thing, too, um, is that when you're in a flow state, it allows you to use all of your perceptual systems to be able to gather information, not just visual information. And I think that's something that um, a lot of coaches um, and even players may only think and focus on the visual component when really we want to be able to use all of our senses to be able to um, execute or be able to um, have very athletic um, performance sure. or to be able to perform at our highest level. And we say we typically have five senses, but we have six. Why don't they teach us the sixth? It's proprioception, our awareness of our body in space. Where am I? Where am I in all of these dimensions? Mm-hmm. and being able to respond with that as well, which is so critical in athletics, in sports. Think How about that in dance, in dance. My other experience, another experience that I've had with flow, is in performing music live, I, I, I'm a string player, with dancers who are improvising to the music that myself and other musicians are playing and looking at a dancer at one point. This is a distinct moment. Catching our eyes connecting with this dancer. 
And she, I, I recognize, bang, right there. She is responding perfectly to what I am playing. And what happened right there is another very unique and esoteric aspect to flow state that the U.S. Navy SEALs use in their training. And this is something called group flow. That dancer was in a flow state already. I was in a flow state already. Our prefrontal cortexes are inactive. Our awareness of self is diminished. We feel like we're one with everything going on, including each other. And you seem to link up with your thoughts, with your mind. And I don't mean conscious thoughts, but the sensation was distinct. The Navy SEALs train for this so that when they are boots down on the ground, they step off of the helicopter and begin the mission that it's no longer follow the leader. Everyone is potentially the leader. There are no ranks. And it's responding to whoever has the best information that is needed for the situation in the moment. So the Navy SEALs train for flow state. They train for group flow. So how do you group flow experience playing ice hockey? Uh, The puck was down in the corner to my right side. I had a defenseman, one of my defensemen out in front of me up front of the net, and I was on the post looking at the corner, looking at the puck there. And as I'm trained to do, I looked over my shoulder, and I saw an opposing player sweeping down through the center of the ice. The plan was for him to catch a pass and knock it in real fast before I could adequately respond. I went to tell my defenseman, cover him, I didn't even get to utter a sound, and he said, got it. And I felt something. And afterwards, we're sitting in the locker room in our stalls, and he looks over at me and said, what was that? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I heard you say something, but you didn't say something. We were both in group flow. We both recognized there was a threat, and he had to respond. And he did. This sounds so crazy, so esoteric. This is this is like Star Wars the Force stuff. But positive psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, Hungarian, his, his career was researching this. This is documented. So in that case, then, as you mentioned, with you playing music to the dancer as well as the your teammate, um, is there a way to determine when someone else is in a flow state? No. Um, you can observe someone performing um, amazingly. Of course, uh, uh, there are stories of of superstars who were just playing out of their mind exceptionally, and they didn't even know what was going on. It's just they were, and what do we call this? 
being in the zone. So we can see someone performing that way. We can observe it that way. But if you're performing and you're watching them and you're thinking about that, you're not going to go there because you're too busy watching them and thinking about, wow, watch him go, as opposed to being absorbed into the moment. You're observing, you're reflecting, you're judging. And that comes from the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. If you are judging, if it's judgment, whether good or bad, we can't go there. So from a, from a team standpoint, um, how, do, how do we kind of foster that uh, group flow? Because I think a lot of people think that team chemistry is the, is the driver of that and, and or culture. Um, I definitely think, you know, based upon what you were saying about having things that can trigger a flow state, I, I, would, I would venture to guess that those things are contributors. But is that the way to get people into group flow or are there other ways to foster and facilitate group flow? Well, I think there are some simple things and team chemistry is one of them. Um, I, I don't, I'm going to just, just throw this out there. I don't, I probably can't go into group flow with someone I don't like because I'm not going to be comfortable with them. And if it's someone on my team, I, I may not like them. I don't know why. I, there haven't been many people like that. But perhaps I don't trust this person to do their job well. And I, I'm not going to go into group flow with them. But you need that. You need that team chemistry, sure. And also, just some real simple concepts with with mental conditioning, getting ourselves to to the point where. To facilitate this, we want to be happy, comfortable, content. I tell my athletes, before you step out there on the field, I want you to laugh. Have somebody tell you a stupid joke. Go out there smiling. So how do you, how do you mix that with the challenge point um, idea? Because I think a lot of coaches think that guys need to focus. And if they are laughing, they're not focused um, or they're distracted uh, because of that. So how do you, how do you respond to uh, people who are worried um, about either them being not focused or um, it taking away from challenge, like it being challenging? So um, what I'm talking about with uh, laughing and being comfortable um, applies to another uh, theory of performance psychology. And, and I'll say this, uh, what, again, I start simply with an athlete and teach them many skills that all layer together to enable them to be mentally strong, mentally conditioned, uh, to facilitate their best performance. So, and what this is uh, about comfort and, and smiling, feeling good, is a concept that was uh, a theory that uh, came from a Soviet scientist named Yuri Hanin. And this is called the individual zones of optimal functioning, or the individualized zones of optimal functioning, or zone of optimal functioning. 
And what this means is that um, every individual has an arousal level at which they perform at their best. Up to that level, they're not performing at their best yet. And beyond that level, in terms of arousal, their performance drops off. So they can be too aroused. But when they get to that individualized zone of optimal functioning, everything is happening right. They're performing at their best. Their arousal is at the best level. That's the point. And that's where uh, so many athletes say, what should I do for my pregame routine, coach? Should I, what music should I listen to? What meal should I have? Should I, uh, should I, I, I bounce the ball off the wall or, you know, go out and play gutter ball with the boys in the hallway or, or uh, should I run around the field or what should I do coach? And with younger ones, I'll help guide them through that. But the general answer is whatever makes you comfortable because that pregame routine is designed to get you to that zone of optimal functioning. Listen to the music that you like. And what starts to come of this is, well, there's no judgment. Put on your earbuds and listen to what you like, regardless of what it is. If it makes you happy, it makes you comfortable, good. When you go to step onto the field, have the, tell the coach, coach, tell me that stupid joke again. And you chuckle. That's all it takes. And that relaxes you a bit. No anxiety. You're not all tight. You're able to go out and find, reach that zone of optimal functioning. And you can start to understand how that can start to lay the foundation to achieve our optimal performance. Does this make sense? Yeah. And yes. I guess one of the, the questions that kind of came up and I, I guess I kind of phrased it incorrectly earlier the, was it makes me think about what you just described, pregame routines. And I know there's a shift in baseball right now to go to more challenging um, pregame uh, batting practice. And I think that is something that coaches have been debating uh, for a long time, should we go with something that is more game-like to try to prepare guys for the game? Or should we go with something that's more comfortable for players and allow them to have more success leading up to the game so that they can have more confidence um, uh, from a mental or psychological standpoint versus um, trying to give them, that's, give them something that is as challenging as the game? Why not uh, both? Why not both? Why not both? Because I can understand going at a game speed. Yeah, you practice harder than you play. And also what we're doing there. Now, this is distinct from our habits. But that's, that's you know, that's challenging our, our uh, nervous system. And it's heightening and raising our nervous system. But we can recognize that. And I may not hit every pitch. Or I may not hit it the way I want to, but I'm out there training hard to perform well. And with the understanding of that, uh, if, if it's not all comfortable, that's okay. We recognize as elite athletes, it's going to be hard, but I know this is making me better and it will help me to perform well. 
And one of the other sayings, sayings too, that's very common in baseball is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. How does that, how could we work that into the ideas and concepts that you have kind of laid out? Is that compatible? Absolutely. That's, uh, I've got that <laughs> scrawled on the wall of my office. Sure. That's, yeah, but you know what? That's life too. And I, that's why I say sport is simply a metaphor for life. But uh, uh, the challenges are going to come. And, and, and as we, as we, Go through the glass ceiling. We we rise to the next level. All of a sudden, everything's hard. Well, you're going to resent that. You just got what you wanted. You've gone to a higher higher league. Everything's going to be hard. So embrace that. Yes, yes, embrace that. Because we recognize that, number one, this is why I'm here. And the challenges will make me better. Here, here's the secret to the, that I love in that. We're fostering intrinsic motivation. And with that, someone's playing for the love of the game, the love of the challenges. It's hard. Bring it. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention, so now that you brought that up, um, it made me think of a scene in the movie Hardball. Not sure if you've seen it before, but essentially this uh, young pitcher has headphones in and he's listening to um, I Love It When You Call Me Big Papa by um, Biggie Smalls. Mm -hmm. And essentially um, the umpire's like, no, you can't have that. But then, you know, he's out of rhythm. So then the coach in the background was singing that song and doing the whole whole nine yards of dancing. So I'm wondering, can, or I've, I've always, I've read articles about how Olympic skiers or snowboarders will train with a specific song set list. And when a certain song goes to a certain peak, that's when they start their jump or things along those lines. Can that be trained as well? And is that, um, kind of a precursor for flow. So what you're talking about in actually scripting performance and associating outside influences with the performance, like music. And and if you can listen to music and and you can design the set list and you can design it down to the time and have the energy increase or that that one song comes on that you perform best to. Um, again, we're talking about arousal regulation and zone of optimal functioning. Again, this is all overlapped. And we're, we can program in triggers. And in researching the facilitation of flow state, we have to look at a way to trigger it. Because we can't say, okay, I'm going to go into flow state now. We're thinking about it. We're saying I. We have to program in triggers. 
into our mind. And so on that note, um, one of the things that I find really cool about flow state and what you're describing um, from an ecological approach and rather looking from a constraint-led approach, um, what you're talking about is more of the individual or the organismic constraints on the athlete. And so things like emotion, thoughts, intentions, um, that's kind of what it sounds like you're describing there. And I think if, if, if a coach is using a constraint-led approach, this is one way that he can manipulate or um, help facilitate the individuals, uh, the constraints that are upon the individual to help them better perform. Um, what are some ways that a coach or even an athlete can facilitate uh, getting into a flow state? What are some um, practices or practical applications of that? First, we have to condition the mind to be um, in the correct state, to be quiet. And we do this by um, raising self-awareness of what our mind is doing. To be, start to become aware of the thoughts, the thoughts coming, and learning to let go of them voluntarily with objective detachment so they don't hook us. And we do this with meditation. So we establish a foundation of meditative practice daily in order to gain mindfulness, to gain self-awareness of what our mind is doing, and to begin to lay that foundation of a quiet mind so it's not in the way. We have to get the mind out of the way first. We can continue that, and as we as we continue a practice of meditation, um, we we uh, it it uh, our experience. I'm trying to think of a good way to state this, it just gets deeper. Um, Do we become more present? Is that is that exactly it? Okay. So so I mentioned Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the the the. The father of flow, uh, I'll, I'll say that loosely. Um, what he said in the uh, introduction to his his student, um, Dr. Um, oh, goodness, I'm, I'm losing a name. Well, um, Jack, Susan Jackson, uh, her book, uh, Flow in Sports. What he said was, it's wonderful that we get to experience flow. We become aware of it in athletics, in the arts. Because what this really is, is the nirvana state. Nirvana isn't heaven or somewhere else or after death, after life, after we die. No, nirvana is simply being completely present in the moment. 100% present in the moment. That's exactly what flow state is. Now, what we do in meditation is we train our mind to be 100% present in the moment. We don't train it not to think. Thinking is natural. We learn to manage the thoughts. I think that's a, a key point there. Um, one, of the, one of the ideas that keeps coming up in my mind uh, related to 
an ecological approach, complex systems theory, is this idea that we don't we don't force or try to control um, a complex system. It doesn't really work as well. And like of having uh, gone through the Headspace meditation app, um, one of the things that they talked about when it comes to thoughts is you're not trying to jump out in front of the thought and try to control it and make it do what you want, but rather you're trying to manage those th- those thoughts and kind of nudge them in the directions that you want and or just simply observe them pass by. Yes. Um, and and I think that's that's a good lesson for for us, you know, even even in this what we're even talking about, like we're talking about trying to figure out how to control flow state. And that seems kind of counter that seems to run contrary to what how it actually works. Um, rather, we're trying to manage uh, the trajectory that we're on and trying to nudge ourselves um, towards that direction or trying to facilitate that. Um, and I think that's that's what, for me, makes this this idea and this concept of flow so interesting, especially in relationship to ecological dynamics, complexity theory, um, all of that when it comes to athletic performance. Yes. And peak performance. Um, yeah, and that's why I very carefully chose the word facilitate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to say, well, we just we slide into flow. Uh, my own experience, in in retrospect, the feeling is the challenge pulls me into flow. I recognize the challenge, and it would seem to to I would say, oh, it pulled me out of my body. It pulled me into flow. It pulled me out of my consciousness. So one of the other things that has struck me about for myself personally is, is about like the thoughts and the beliefs that I have and how that plays into when I am trying to perform something. Um, And, and I guess one of the other questions I have is that I notice that if I go to get too present, I sometimes forget what I'm doing. So how do you strike that balance of um, going completely blank when it's time for you to perform and uh, you, you just don't, it's, it's a completely blank slate and you're not actually ready to perform, but you're, you're totally present, but instead you're kind of like a deer caught in the headlights. Um, how do you, how do you actually, um, if you're trying to kind of sort of empty your mind and be present, how can you also um, make sure that you're still prepared to respond to the task that's in front of you. Yeah. Um, well, of course, we do have a degree of fo- we have a very de- great degree of focus in our performance, and uh, we we don't let go of that. Uh, with what we let go of, are is our attachment to thoughts and emotions. Of course, thoughts are going to arise. Emotions are going to arise. We observe them with objective detachment, no judgment and no attachment. And we we can decide what we're going to do with those. Um, I uh, have uh, clients who uh, who are competing professionally uh, and who. Uh, have 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 been in situations of challenge and when it's hard 
when, when the mind is on overdrive, lots of thoughts, lots of emotions, but they still have to perform. They're professional athletes. It's their job. And so I have breathing techniques that I teach them to employ right there in competition to help clear their mind. And, and that cre- that's, that's accomplished by creating a literally a, a chronologic space between when they became aware of the discordant thought or emotion and uh, the completion of the breathing. They, there's been no thought. And then at the end of that, they simply say, just focus on the next play. Or for, if they're an ice hockey goalie, just focus on the next shot. So basically, when we're doing this stuff, we need to have a focus. Is that what you, is that what you're you're kind of somewhat saying? Like the focus actually helps um, quiet the mind when you actually uh, have it focus on something. Yeah, watch what, the game. Watch the game. Watch watch uh, uh, what's going on, and even even think about when it's not right before you. What someone, oh, they should be doing this, or that person, oh, they have the ball, oh, they're going to pass the ball that way, I would have passed the ball this way. And watch how it, it how the game progresses. We have different kinds of focus. We have internal focus, we have an external focus, we have a narrow focus, we have a broad focus. When the game's at the other end of the field, we have a broad external focus. When it approaches our end and we have a, our, our focus tightens up. And, and, but we have to focus on the play. We have to focus on what we're doing. And if we're playing baseball and we're up to bat, we have to focus. But, but we can't be thinking about something else. We can't be worrying. Is this pitcher better than me? We simply let go of the thought but we still focus on the pitcher, on the ball. And we're not hitting that ball consciously. We're hitting that ball because of kinesthetic response. What the coach calls muscle memory. It's what we've practiced to do. And we've mastered that skill, catching the ball, throwing a pitch. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm trying to. Um, I, I worked with pitchers in university in Texas, so mm. I know a little bit about baseball. Awesome. Um, I guess I got I got two questions, and I'm trying to decide which one to to kind of go with, or, or one question and a comment. I guess um, one of the things that from an ecological approach is like this, and, and this goes back to the the idea of oneness that you described earlier. Um, was from an ecological perspective, it's all about coupling your perception to your action or um, having a tight coupling between the performer and the, and the environment. And the idea of oneness that you described earlier seems to describe this, that, that idea and that notion of that tight coupling between the performer and the environment. And two, you know, it would explain why is it that sometimes an athlete can be really, really good. Um, and that same a- athlete at times can be, um, really, really not good. Um, and can seem to be playing like a novice. Um, 
and that's that's what I find to be um, really fascinating or important about this idea of flow state. Would you do you think it would be possible to have really high performance in something that you've never encountered before by simply getting into a flow state? Well, it takes a degree of mastery to give you the comfort to meet that challenge. Uh, you have already have to have confidence. You have to feel confident in the moment in what you're doing. So I, that's where uh, it's generally accepted that a novice uh, cannot experience, typically not experience flow state. Um, but this, this now, there aren't written rules about this. Mm-hmm. And we're still learning more about what we don't know than what we do know right now. There are, because there are states of consciousness that are attributed to flow that are, are the activities are quite dissimilar. Mm-hmm. And there, there isn't even a challenge. There's no skill challenge ratio. If, if Robert and Garrett, if we were to sit down in front of a roaring fire with some nice drinks and we started talking about this, I bet at some point one of us would look at our watch and say, oh, my gosh, it's three in the morning. Where did the time go? And we're so immersed in the conversation that the time escapes us. And we are, we, we've, we've even lost our sense of self. We may have even gone into group flow. And that's, that's what I've, I was kind of curious about because we were discussing about how parts of the brain go inactive. Um, but at the same point, if, if you can get into a flow state talking, then how, how is it that the, the, the thoughts that we have, um, you know, when we're talking about like having thoughts kind of, uh, not be present, is that, is that where that to me is where things get tricky. Although I, I perfectly think that these ideas apply here. I do think that speaking is actually an emergent property. Um, the, the words actually just emerge uh, based upon the constraints in the situation. Um, but it, and we're we're not in a flow state when we become over um, critical of of what we're saying, or we begin to metacognate on what we're saying as we're saying it. I think, and that actually that. pulls us out of flow. Um, yes, I agree. I agree. And and at the same time, all by myself, I can be sitting at my keyboard at 1 a.m. writing about writing about flow state, something I'm passionate about. And all of a sudden it's 4 a.m. and I have really been productive and it's good. And I and it feels like I haven't even been thinking the words flow out of me. Through the keyboard. It used to be typing on a typewriter. Hmm. So to go back to the uh, the emotional piece, I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, are you familiar with uh, the work uh, or Bruce Lee's work? Um, um, I'm not sure. Okay, fair enough. He was a uh, actor in the oh, I know 60s. Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 60s and 70s. And yeah. um, 
in the in the movement world, we kind of view him as a kind of a movement philosopher. Right. But one thing there there's a scene in his last um, blockbuster movie, Enter the Dragon, where he's working with a student, and um, basically the scene goes such where he says to the to the student, "Kick me," and the student uh, throws a kick at him, and he says, "What was that?" Um, and follows it up with, "We need uh, to have emotional contact." or sorry, emotional content. Um, try again. And so he, he does it again. And he says, not anger. I said, emotional content um, with me this time. And to me that when he just, when he says with me, that's, that's that element of describing connecting to your environment. It's not the emotion should fit what it is that you're doing. Um, so I wonder when, when you were talking about emotion before, is there no place for emotion or is it again about trying to manage our emotion and trying to get it to connect to the actual situation and having those two things match and having them essentially um, uh, synergistically um, connect or become one with, with the situation? Again, emotion, just like thought, is a natural process that we, if we are busy trying to repress it, that is attachment. That is putting energy into fighting it, and it has caught us. So we have to be able to work with our emotion and to observe it with objective detachment and determine, is there a place for this? Is this the right emotion? Again, we want to, we employ emotional regulation in order to, and, and that's part of arousal control in order to get us into that comfort zone, the zone of optimal functioning. So emotion has a place. And at the same time, I, I told the story about, uh, I was training an athlete technique and I made it really hard for them what they had to do. And they got very angry at me and said, I can't do that. And I, and I went up to him and I put my arm around him and I said, I know you're pissed off at me right now. I said, I want you to turn around and smack me with that. I want you to use that. I want you to focus that. And he was angry, but he said, all right. We went back into the situation, same scenario. And we went into it and he immediately succeeded. Hmm. And he simply focused his energy. He had to show himself that he could do this. He was saying, I can't do it. Well, of course you can. I would not ask you to do it if you can't, is what I told him. So now I want you to use this anger to accomplish it. So that's not to say that emotions don't have a place. Of course they do. It's part of us. It's learning to use them. Let me share a fun analogy. I love to use pop culture references in my teaching because I'm often working with young athletes and it helps them to understand and to access what I'm saying a little better. Unfortunately, now one of the pop culture influence, uh, uh, one of the pop culture things that I like to use is now so old; it's older than many of my athletes, and that is the original Matrix movie, The Matrix. Mm. This is the perfect metaphor 
for mental conditioning. This is, I watched the movie, I mean, I, I saw it in the theaters 20 years ago, and I watched it again, um, I don't know, a few, five years ago. I was just struggling, oh my God, this is it. And at the end, where Neo is going into bullet time and he's dodging bullets, and at the end, when he stops the bullets and he makes things go his way, this is flow state. This is flow state. This is, this is reaching that point where we start to be able to work with reality. Now, I'm not saying you're going to stop bullets, but things slow down. You start to be able to work at, at seemingly another level. But at the beginning, you, you can't believe any of this. And, and when I go and teach, coach, and lecture at elite camps in the summer, and I'm, I'm lecturing every day for five days, the first lecture is, you want the blue pill or the red pill? Mm -hmm. Are you going to, you know, and there's that openness to experience. You know, are you ready to go down the wormhole? Are you ready, Alice? Are you ready to go down Alice's hole? The... You know, things are going to get crazy and you have to open up your mind and be willing to accept them just to talk about flow state. And I never talk about that on the first day. It becomes a distraction. And I never talk about that in the first six months of someone's training. It becomes a distraction. We have to condition the mind. We have to condition the mind. And that is as difficult or as physically challenging or more so than conditioning the body. It's practice and repetition, repetition, until we start to drive. We're driving and not our hind brain. So when it comes to, comes to that, what are some practical things that, that we can do? I know uh, one thing you mentioned was breathing. And I think uh, going back to the constraint-led approach, I th actually think that Breathing is one way that a person can actually um, change their their internal or uh, physiological, psychological state is through breathing. Yes. Um, so, what are some some sort of techniques or places, simple places that uh, coaches and athletes um, can can kind of take away from 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 what you're describing here and, sure. and actually apply it? Sure. So, um, one thing I I, I teach athletes is that if you are in competition and something has distracted you uh, and, the, and the thoughts are running, uh, perhaps you've made a mistake and you can't stop dwelling on that mistake and you recognize it. This is what's going on. We need to, we need to get that out of our mind. We need to come back to the present instead of dwelling on that mistake. Um, we employ a technique uh, commonly called counted breathing. It's also called square breathing. And we're always inhaling through our nose with all of our breathing techniques. We inhale through our nose and we exhale through our mouth. This has a profound effect on us physiologically and psychologically. That psychological component comes from the effect on the vagus nerve. Mm. Uh, that we're only learning the power of. We're only learning the power of the vagus nerve. 
And the way we do this counted breathing is we recognize, okay, I've got a problem here. I'm, 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 I'm dwelling on a problem. I got to come back here, focus. And so we always take a cleansing breath to begin it. Inhaling through our nose, filling our lung to capa- lungs capacity, and then whoosh, letting it out of our, our mouth. We've just lowered our blood pressure. Then we inhale through our nose and we count to four in our mind. One, two, three, four. We pause. One, two, three, four. We exhale out of our mouth. One, two, three, four. We pause. One, two, three, four. That's one cycle. Inhaling, pausing. Exhaling, pausing. And if we have time, we do it again, another cycle. Inhale to the count of four, pausing, exhaling to the count of four, pausing to the count of four. And if we have time, we do it a third time and even a fourth time. And the way this works is that from the moment we recognized we were dwelling, thinking about a problem, worrying, doubting ourselves, We started the breathing with that cleansing breath. Our focus now, our mind is so consumed with count, with inhaling through our nose, counting to four, taking a breath, um, pausing, counting to four, exhaling, counting to four, pausing, counting to four. Our mind is consumed with that. It's a lot. That it can't think about the other stuff. And the longer we do it, the bigger space and time we create from that discursive thought to the present moment. And then we stop and we say, just focus on the next play. And we have unhooked. We have unhooked ourselves from the thought, from the thinking. This is very effective. I've got a lot of anecdotal stories from elite athletes employing this. I even have... Professional athletes, I've got um, professional women hockey players who in their have full-time jobs because we don't fund uh, women's professional sports adequately. So one's a teacher, and she's t- taught her kids how to do this in exams, which I love. I love. So this, is, this counted breathing is a very successful technique. It changes us physiologically. It can calm us down, but it doesn't push us out of our out of our zone of optimal functioning. It doesn't relax us. It simply brings our focus to our breathing, and that's that's what we use in meditation. This isn't meditation. We don't do meditation in the game. We do that at another time of the day when we wake up in the morning. So that's a skill coaches can take away and teach and employ. And it's very successful, very successful. Um, diaphragmatic breathing is something you can look up that is very helpful, very useful uh, for other things. Um, but, but the breath, the breath, it's been called the umbilical cord to the universe. Our breath controls everything. And, and it's very powerful. It's a powerful tool and it's a skill and technique that we use in um, mental skills work. I'm very curious. You said uh, 
breathing in through the nose and then out through the mouth. Um, I've, I've heard people talk a lot about more recently, the importance of breathing through the nose. Yes. Um, why is it that you want to exhale through the mouth versus through the nose? Is there, is there that big of a difference between those two? Um, you know, does it stimulate the vagus nerve differently? Uh, why, why is it that um, people kind of go back and forth on on that. I can't give you uh, the exact reason now. Other than that, I've been I learned it, and uh, it made sense. And so, okay, it's what I practice. Um, but I'm not a breathing authority. Um, but that's a good topic to look up, honestly. But um, I think it does have to do with stimulation. Because I also think like exhaling through the mouth, like uh, psychologically puts you in a different state than exhaling through the nose. Sure. And also uh, in terms of the purpose of that counted breathing, which was to uh, uh, disengage ourselves from the thinking. So we have to make what we're doing complicated enough to fill our brain space. Changing the inhalation and the exhalation, making them different. Inhaling through the nose, exhaling through the mouth. That takes conscious thought and counting. So we're filling up the mind with that. But at the same time, when we practice the shamatha or breathing meditation that we use for establishing the foundation um, for these practices, um, that too is inhaling through the nose and exhaling through the mouth. And that's a very, very, very old uh, practice. Um, it just seems with so many, it is inhaling through the nose, exhaling through the mouth. Mm. I love it. I, I really appreciate it. Do you have, uh, to wrap up, we usually ask um, any other resources that uh, you would recommend to people if they want to learn more about these ideas and concepts? Most of these are readily available uh, or, or things that you can uh, search online and find information about. Um, I don't have a resource at hand that, that I can share, but uh, there are many out there um, that are uh, applicable uh, to uh, coaches and athletes uh, as opposed to um, uh, research scholars like myself. Um, uh, there are so many books, so many, um, that are good and helpful. Um, I actually have a pile of books sitting at my feet, um, because I am researching. Um, but so many of these are, 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 uh, academic uh, books. Um, uh, some that I would recommend. Uh, a book called The Mind Within the Brain by Reddish, R-E-D-I-S-H. Another uh, is called The Performance Cortex by mm -hmm. Zach Schonbrunn. That's a good one. I've read that one. Mm -hmm. And another... Um, uh, book uh, I think is wonderful. Uh, it's called The Champion's Comeback by Jim Aframo. Mm. 
That's yeah, that I also would recommend that as well. Yeah, I'd recommend those. Um, they're very accessible uh, and very readable. In terms of flow state, I'm going to recommend two books um, from popular culture. Um, the science in these is not uh, something that my uh, uh, academic colleagues um, all approve of, but as an introduction to the amazing world of flow state, I would recommend uh, Jamie Wheel, W-H-E-A-L, his book, What's the title of that book? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm looking for it on my shelf. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Should have done a video chat so yeah, I could see. Stealing, stealing fire, ah. like stealing fire from Prometheus. I just, I just uh, finished that one. That that book is also good. Another is by his co-author Stephen Kotler, K-O-T-L-E-R. Uh, it's called The Rise of Superman. You, you've read uh, Stealing Fire? Mm -hmm. Do you recall yep. the chapter in there that discussed the fellow that was uh, um, base jumping into a huge hole mm -hmm. in Central America? Mm -hmm. And his parachute failed. He grabbed hold of a rope. And don't, this is deep. Don't remember and, that and falling into the ground, he just he burned the skin off of his hands and uh, parts of his body. And he landed so hard that he really hurt himself badly. Mm -hmm. He's laying there at the bottom of this enormous, enormous hole into the earth. It has its own ecosystem. Um, people parachute into it. It's so big. And that's what he was doing. And he's laying there on the floor. And in the process of all this, he went into flow state. And he's laying there. And there on the, on the ground is a small bird, like a sparrow, that was, that was dying. And he picked it up in his hands. And he had this experience with this bird. It's an amazing chapter in this book, talking about just these experiences. There's a lot of discussion of um, action adventure athletes and their experiences of flow state. Yeah, I'd highly recommend people check check those things out. Um, Ted, if people want to get in contact with you and or um, work with you, how how should they connect with you? Sure, you're welcome to email me at uh, tedmonic at gmail.com. Perfect. Um, I'm, 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 I'm happy to respond. We'll, we'll make sure to put uh, that in the show notes uh, so people can reach out to you. Ted, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us about flow. It was an awesome, awesome little chat we had. Thank you for yeah. having me. Thank you. Thank you.